And Father, above all else, we desire this morning to praise you, and we desire that we would see a little bit of who you are today in your word, and knowing who you are will motivate us to bow down and worship you today. And that's the bottom line of what we want to do and continue to put you above all things, above all other concerns that we may have, and leave those concerns in your hand. And Lord, if there's anything that may block us from maximum benefit, that if it's sin, we may confess it, and we may be in full fellowship with you today. So we just commit our time asking that you would have your way amongst us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Linda says, you should have said that amen and hello to Sharon. Oh, and hello to Sharon. Well, we have Noah with us today. You want to introduce Noah? <laughs> Good. There's a lot of ways to distort the truth, and I was just vividly reminded of how the mainstream media distorts the truth, and not only in their overt distortion, but a lot of ways you distort the truth is by not giving a complete picture, not emphasizing other areas that would totally change the perception of what is actually real. But unfortunately, I think the church, in a similar way, does that with some biblical doctrines. The media can distort the truth by not telling you certain things, and by doing that, you get a different perspective on reality. Similarly, biblically, if you emphasize other doctrines or some doctrines over other doctrines, then you have a distorted picture of not only those doctrines, but God himself, particularly if they relate to him. And I think today the church overemphasizes the doctrine of God's love. Now, you don't want to deny it, but if you overemphasize it to the neglect of other doctrines, then you have a distorted picture of not only that concept, that doctrine, but you also have a distorted picture of who God is. Certainly, God is a God of love. The passage we're going to look at deals with God's love. But we've also spent months, years now, I guess, looking at God's wrath, God's judgment, God's condemnation. Church tends to minimize and in some cases even denies but in large measure neglects those ideas as well, neglects those doctrines. And in so doing, they not only distort the doctrine of love, but they distort the whole character and nature of God. The advantage of going sentence by sentence, which there are very few today that do that anymore, sadly, I think, the advantage of it is you come to a passage that deals with the wrath of God, like one eighteen. And that's a major theme throughout many verses and chapters. Then you have to deal with it, and we have. We've spent lots of time. As depressing, as frightening, as sobering as that concept is. But without that, you don't have a full picture of not only God, but when you deal with who God is himself in terms of love, 
you really have an inadequate and you don't have a good picture of what love is. So now that we come to a passage, not only can we appreciate it more, but we can also understand it. So we're going to look at God's love. Familiar area, but it's in this context. And I want to emphasize areas of that love that sometimes we don't look at that are in the passage itself. Connie? It distorts the whole of salvation. Yes. We don't, we don't yes. Yeah, exactly. It not only distorts that particular doctrine, it distorts the nature of God. And as Connie's pointing out, it distorts other doctrines as well, like the doctrine of salvation. Very good, Connie. It destroys uh, what we think of ourselves. And, yeah, it gives us distorted picture of who we are as well. Exactly. So we're talking about the book of Romans, and we've been talking about Christians that are suffering and have suffered. And this letter is directed to a church. When Paul writes it, there was relative peace, but before and after there was persecution in the city of Rome epitomized by the Colosseum there. So we're looking at some major areas, some major doctrines, doctrine of God's righteousness, and we're going to see how that is related to God's love. God has provided it. That in itself tells us something of his love. We're looking at justification, chapter 3, 21 to the end of chapter 5. We've seen the prophet from justification, or we're in that portion, chapter 5, 1 through 11. In other words, what are the benefits? How do we profit from justification? We looked at the present benefits, emphasizing kind of a time sequence here. Things that are true for those who having been justified, past tense, those that have experienced justification, they have peace with God implying antagonism. That's another theme of the passage we're going to look at this morning. This conflict between man and God. We also have access to his grace that we didn't have before, which opens up all of the grace that is available to us in the Christian walk and other things besides salvation. And Paul, in these two verses, particularly verse 2, looks at the end product which is a benefit we are assured of that hope. In fact, hope has the idea of assurance of something in the future related to faith. And that hope is that we will be rid of these sinful bodies someday and we will be given a glorified body. So he talks about glorification at the end of the passage. And from that, you might think, well, does that mean that we can just live freely and there's not going to be any struggle or problems in the Christian life? No, there's going to be tribulation, so that follows. So he's dealing with other areas, dealing with this transition from justification by faith that happens at an instant, at a moment that a person trusts, and he's going to begin a new section in chapter 6 dealing with the Christian walk. So we're kind of transitioning here. So he dealt with the whole concept of tribulation. It's an ongoing concept through the Christian life, and I call it tribulation exaltation because we can praise, we can boast even, we can exalt, rejoice even, consider it all joy, James says, when you encounter it. Not because we're masochists, not because we're going to enjoy it, not because it's fun, but because it's part of life, 
and it has a purpose. So we spent some time looking at the purpose of suffering, and we have a particular kind of suffering here. It is for our spiritual growth. There's other reasons we suffer, sometimes because of our bad decisions. That's not what is in view in this passage. So we have this ongoing tribulation. So we have a long sentence that we've been looking at. We're going to complete verse 5, and then we're going to get into the next portion. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing certain things. It's very, very important. And I tried to stress also, this is why week after week we study the scriptures, not only in class here, but you study on your own so that you have a biblical worldview. And by understanding biblical principles, now you're in a position to evaluate and understand and look at everything differently, including tribulation. So there's a biblical perspective on it that we've looked at for the last two weeks. I'm going to just quickly review a little bit of it. Knowing what tribulation does. In other words, he's assuming his audience have been taught fundamental Christian concepts, particularly dealing with, in this case, the place of suffering in the Christian walk, the Christian life. So we looked at verse 3, tribulation leads to or produces. In fact, that's the word that's used there. Produces perseverance or endurance, a Christian virtue that we need. In other words, we're going to live a life that's going to have lots of experiences and we need to face that and we need to develop that strength that no matter what enters our experience, God's going to handle it for us if we continually trust in him. So we know that tribulation produces positive things and from that we can look at no matter what, and I gave you Not some example specifically. Well, I did. I gave you Stephen in the first century. But martyrs throughout the church age have had a different perspective. They've known what suffering does. They've also had the concept that God is going to use their persecution for good. Because of Romans 8.28. So with that, we can face no matter what comes and look at it from a different perspective. And we don't have to be tossed about like the unbeliever is and caught by surprise because we know certain things. So perseverance produces approvedness. Probably the best way to look at the word there. Something that has gone through a test and God has now approved. Approvedness. So this is a process. This takes time. So that's verse 4. And that approvedness, beginning in verse 5, produces hope. In other words, we have experienced what God has had for us. We've endured it. We've come through it. And once we've come through it, now we have assurance that God is going to complete the process of sanctification. And it looks to that future hope. And we've been saying that hope in the Bible is not just a wish. We use the word in that sense. The Bible uses it in terms of assurance of what God has promised. In other words, we can be assured because God has proven himself. He was faithful to us to keep us in the midst of tribulation. And now that gives us assurance that he's going to complete the process. So we have hope. And I've said that handling tribulation starts with biblical grounding. In other words, you understand these principles. 
You understand the place of suffering and tribulation. You understand that God is going to use it to refine us, and God is going to use it also in the people that perhaps are persecuting. And I gave the vivid example of Stephen. The text makes a point that Saul was holding the garments of the persecutors. He was a participant. Chapter 8, chapter after that, begins by telling us that Paul was there when Stephen died. Paul was a witness. And I think later on when the Lord appears to him, that is part of what contributed to Paul's salvation. He saw the living power of God in in Stephen. So when we are persecuted, God can use that if we respond rightly to it in those that are persecuting us. So we need the grounding to know these biblical principles. And there's lots of principles as well as promises concerning how God is going to deal with us in the midst of that. He's going to give us and supply us with everything that we need to face whatever tribulation we may face. We talked about those tribulations. So when they come, when they arrive, if you are grounded, you are prepared to handle it. You know how to respond. You know what to do. Because your perspective is from a biblical perspective, and you're looking at this not as, oh, poor me, but you're looking at it from the perspective, God is doing a greater work, not only in me, but in those around me. So now we can focus on that truth. So we handle it by focusing on those promises, claiming them, focusing on what God is doing in the midst, and not focusing on poor me, the hurt, the the things that we're experiencing. And fourthly, we trust him. And as we trust him, we can endure. In other words, we can persevere in the midst of that. And in time, we know it's going to end because that's a biblical promise as well. He's going to preserve us. And even if we die in the midst of it, that's the end of it. And now we're glorified. We do we go through the martyrdom. So this is how we handle it. And that was the focus of what we talked about last week. And it says, and hope, verse 5, does not disappoint. That's where we left off. Why? Because we've gone through it. We've experienced the power of God. We've been changed as a result of what we've experienced. We've developed perseverance. We've seen that God was faithful. We've perhaps even seen miracles like Stephen did. He saw a vision of God in the midst of his suffering. I'm not saying we'll see the same thing, but we will be given that same sense inwardly that God has in fact worked. He's preserved me. He Maybe his work even a miracle in changing a circumstance. Maybe somebody came to know Christ as a result of it. Whatever the situation, that's a miracle, by the way. And now that leads us to hope. So he states the very opposite, not disappointment, not regret. And in some cases, people lose all of their possessions. If you have a worldly perspective, oh, now you're regretting it. But if you have a biblical perspective, now you know it doesn't matter. And Paul in Philippians 3 says, I've counted everything lost to know Christ. 
He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about this intimate knowledge and this relationship with him. So it doesn't disappoint. In fact, the word could be used in a sense of doesn't shame us. Even though we may go through shameful things, we are not shamed, but instead we are the opposite. We can exult in it. Back to what he said at the beginning of it. So it does not disappoint. And now he's going to give reasoning behind it. Why does it not disappoint? Because of that biblical truth that we know. And now he's going to emphasize in the midst of that, we're going to experience the love of God. And we talked about because of all of that, now we can exalt in it. In other words, we can glory in suffering. And we looked at some other passages. First Peter 4 emphasized the idea that it's an honor to suffer for Christ. In fact, we participate in his suffering and are part of what he has experienced. And that draws us to him. And that gives us a sense of his love for us. We looked at Philippians 3. We can experience his power in the midst of suffering. And God's going to work in a variety of ways and display that power in a variety of ways, depending on how he chooses to deal with our situation. And we also know that it's part of us growing or sanctifying, sanctification. Second Timothy 2, 10 and 12 emphasize that. We looked those up last time. And uh, I kind of brushed over some of the examples of people that did this, where Paul, Philippians 4, 12, is able to glory. And he may be alluding to some of his experiences that are recorded in the book of Acts, where we see, for example, in the Philippian jail, they're able to rejoice in the midst of being chained to a wall in a prison. And Luke speaks of Peter and Satan wanting to sift him, bring tribulation into Peter's life. Terry? Distinguish it all between suffering for Christ, when you stand up for Christ, you suffer, and just general suffering, you get a disease. Yeah, we went through uh, five different categories of why we suffer, and the one that is in view here is refinement, at least, yeah, refinement. It also may include suffering for righteousness' sake, was one of the categories that we've talked about. I made a big point is a lot of times we suffer for our own sin, and that's not what he's talking about in chapter 5. Okay, so the reason, because the love of God has been poured out. Now, in this context, you can expect in the midst of suffering to experience the love of God. Not these fuzzy feelings necessarily. And he's going to expand on the love of God and he's going to speak in terms of different aspects. So we're going to develop that this morning. And by the way, on the outline sheet, when I first sent it out, I just send out the exegetical portion of it. In other words, the outline of the passage. And as I was thinking about it, I decided to insert an outline within an outline. And I've got kind of these truths concerning God's love that sometimes are not emphasized that come right out of the passage. So this passage is going to tell us something about agape love. This is a different kind of love than human emotional love. So the love of God has been poured out. The concept of God pouring something out. Now we've been looking at a variety of terms, exalt, we've looked at boasting or rejoicing. 
tribulation is any kind, it's a general term for affliction, perseverance, enduring, continuing, and in the midst of suffering particularly, produces proven character or approvedness, tested character, you could say, hope and expectation, in fact, an assurance of something that God has promised, that we can come to expect it, and this word poured out, it's used in a literal sense, of pouring literal wine out of a container or any liquid in that culture. So it's just a common everyday word. It's also used in a metaphorical sense of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I think it's an image that gives that idea of this abundant pouring out, like you would pour out a pitcher of water or soft drink or whatever, or wine even. So it has that kind of idea. So we have this flooding of the Holy Spirit upon us. And I think to the extent that we are suffering, to that extent, if we are trusting the Lord, we can experience, you might even say, this flooding of the Holy Spirit and through that, the love of God. And there's several passages that emphasize the Holy Spirit as being poured out. So it's a vivid image. Well, so, yep. It's also relevant because earlier in Romans, God, Paul talks about God's wrath being poured. Yes, out. very good. So it ties it back. Yes, but not only good observation. Wrath poured out on those who reject Him. Exactly. His hope is poured out upon those who trust Him. Exactly. Which also deals with the whole shame aspect. Yes. Because it's his love being poured out, not his wrath, because those who experience wrath change. Yes, exactly. Good point. Good tie-in. Get that? (laughs) Yeah, he's been emphasizing the outpouring of wrath, and we can experience the alternative to that, which is an outpouring of his love. So tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance, approvedness. Approvedness produces hope. And that hope is because, and we experience the love of God. It's because of the love of God. Verse 5, 5, 5. And now, now that he's mentioned the love of God, that's going to be the topic for the next few verses through verse 8. So he's going to give some aspects of this love of God. And I've got them on your outline sheet. I'm going to use this slide to bring them out. And there's at least three things that we can say from verse 5. Biblical love or agape love, which finds its source in God himself. So it's a supernatural love. It's God's love. First of all, is related to hope. It's related to that assurance. They're tied together. When we have that hope, we know that hope is on the basis of what God has said concerning what he's going to do and what he's going to complete. So it's part of the hope we can experience that love. It's experienced particularly in tribulation. And again, we're not talking about fuzzy feelings necessarily. I mean, sometimes those fuzzy feelings come as a result of the reality of biblical love. Now, this passage doesn't stress it, but if you read 1 Corinthians 13 you find out that love is described in terms of actions, not feelings. There are no feelings in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is kind. In other words, 
You can see it in kindness. What's the list there? Love is kind. I can't remember. Does not envy. Does not boast. Doesn't keep score. All of these are tangible, real things that we do in terms of other people. It doesn't have anything, well, it does, but not directly anything to do with those feelings of emotional love. In fact, the Bible uses a different word to describe that kind of love. So it's experienced, and you can sense it and even feel it, but you can certainly experience it in tribulation. And thirdly, I believe that love is poured out because that's what the text says. So it's lavishly poured out. And I think it is in proportion to the severity of the tribulation that we experience. So those that are martyred, I think they had a greater outpouring, if you will, and a greater sense that they belong to the Lord. You can experience that. So those are things that are not always brought out, particularly the aspect of love is experienced in the midst of tribulation. And I think that's the focus of what we're looking at here. And it's within our hearts. So everything outside of us may be seemingly falling apart. Everything outside of us may be pure evil imposed upon us. Everything outside of us is going totally against a sense of peace, contentment, and love. But yet within our hearts, that's why martyrs, that's why people that suffer, godly people with the right perspective can experience contentment and joy because it's within, it's internal. This is why the unbeliever can't understand it. The unbeliever is pouring out persecution, and all this person does is he pours coals on my head, coals of kindness. How does that happen? Well, it comes from inside. It comes from the innermost being. So it's poured out within our hearts, and obviously it's through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Notice the past tense also. I think that's a perfect tense again. In other words, at the moment of salvation, we received the Holy Spirit And that continues to produce effects, ongoing effects. One of the effects is this outpouring of love. So now, beginning in uh, the next verse, in verse 6, he's going to expand on talking about this love. So the theme is going to continue. For, now I'm going to emphasize that because we're going to have several fours. There are two of them here. And if you look at the next verses, you can see several fours in them. Not number four, but F-O-R. And you have to keep track. And I'm going to help you keep track of them. You might write these in your Bibles here. We have different words that are translated the same in English. And it's good to keep them in mind because they have a different sense. Each of them, well, not each of them, but the two words are different from one another. The first one is the common gar in Greek, oftentimes translated for, and it can have a variety of usages. It's oftentimes a transitional word from one idea to a next idea or a reinforcing of the next idea. And in fact, the gar can give you the cause of something. In other words, this happens, and sometimes it's even translated because, and it'll give you the cause. Or sometimes it'll give you the reason for something. 
And again, it could be translated, this happens because of this. So it starts with for, because this is true. In some cases, it's the basis of some prior action. That's the idea behind the word for, simple word. I think in this context, it could be the basis of some action, but I think more it's an inference from what he previous said. In other words, he's talking about love, and now he's going to expand on this idea of love. And now he says for, or an inference of love, is because of these things that are true about it. Okay? So that's what that for. And now what he's going to say, while we were still helpless. Helpless. Now, if you do a word study on that, you're going to see two major categories. You're going to see a normal, everyday usage of the word, a literal usage. And in its literal context, it has the idea of some sickness. In fact, it's translated as sickness. And in the gospel, sometimes it refers to just physical ailments of some kind or disability. So to be even translated a sickness of blindness or crippling or whatever. So it's used in that literal sense. And there's a combination of words in that word group. This is the noun. Sometimes it's used in a verbal sense to be sick. The noun and the verb are the same. It's just different usages of the same concept. So this helpless idea, in the second way that it's used very commonly in terms of spiritual weakness. The, what is it, the will is, I got the verse mixed up, I think, is willing or the desire is willing, but what? The spirit is willing, but the, the, spirit body is willing, but the, body, is the body or some translations, the flesh, referring to our physical or spiritual, including the totality who we are. We don't have the spiritual power to be able to accomplish what we sometimes desire to do. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, same word. So it can be used in a variety of spiritual ways. And in this context, it's talking about helpless. And in the context of justification by faith, I think it looks at our depravity. And remember when we talk about depravity, it doesn't mean the worst case scenario, but it has the idea of even our best selves cannot accomplish anything of eternal significance and particularly in pleasing God. So we are spiritually unable, and the word helpless, I think, is a very good translation. We are helpless to change our spiritual condition, and it's because of depravity. That's why I put it in the outline there. In fact, I'm also using these as my alliteration to fill up the outline there. So... It's our total inability to be able to do anything to change our lost condition. And Paul is going to emphasize that past condition. Not only does he use it, use the word helpless. Now, he uses different words that convey different ideas. Helpless, I think, looks at our total inability to change our lostness. So, When we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the who? Ungodly, that word is almost always used of the unbeliever, the person that is without God. That's why he's ungodly, because he doesn't have God 
didn't have a relationship. Then at uh, verse 8, while we were yet sinners. In other words, we we don't hit the target, if you will. We fall short. He uses the common word for sin there. We were sinners, missing the mark of God's glory, imperfection, therefore condemned. And then in verse 10, we won't get that far today. For, there's another for, we'll look at it when we get there. If while we were And notice they're all in the past tense, looking at where we were before we were justified. We were what? Enemies. That's why one of the themes of this passage is this reconciliation where we have peace. But in the past, we were enemies. So we were helpless, unable to change our condition. We were ungodly, all of the characteristics of the unbeliever. We were sinners, in in fact, Another aspect of that, we were actively in rebellion against God, doing specific things, violating God's standards, all of them falling short. And as a result of all that, we are at enmity, we are at war, we are enemies of God. So he's stressing that past aspect in order to bring out the vividness. It's in that condition that God has given us his love or expressed his love. And another theme throughout this is dying. Christ dying at the time when we had no way to change our condition. We were helpless. So at the right time. Very interesting. And I think what is referred to here is what we have in several passages in terms of the timing, particularly Galatians 4. Four. God has a plan, and in that plan, he had certain things he was going to accomplish at the right time. Galatians 4.4, 4. but when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, and then he goes in the next verse, expanding, and again came to die. But the emphasis there is at the right time. The scriptures seem to emphasize that the first century and what Christ did is part of this not only great plan, but everything God in his sovereign control has been working to accomplish. And I think Paul is referring to the same thing in this Roman passage, at the right time. In other words, when uh, God had orchestrated events, such that his son would pay the penalty. So at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We have a different four here. We'll trace it through. But this is not gar. This is a different four, even though in English it's the same word. So in English you don't have the precise idea. Here's where it's an advantage to be able to know a little bit of Greek. And this is pretty simple. The idea for here is huper, translation. This word, even though it's only a preposition, you might think, why are prepositions important? Biblically, this word is used very, very often in a context. It has the idea of something in the place of something else. This thing for something else. Very different from gar. 
So what we have is substitutionary sacrifice here, substitutionary death. And that's a concept that you find in, in many passages. For example, 2 Corinthians 5.15, and he died, and you have huper, for all. In other words, in the place of all humanity. Christ died in their place as a substitute. Theologically, this concept starts in the garden after the very first sin, the idea of a substitutionary (coughs) sacrifice. God substituted a lamb for Adam and Eve. The penalty of sin is death. Adam and Eve deserve to die. And they did die. And they deserve to pay the full penalty of it. But in Genesis 3, we also have salvation and an animal took the spiritual consequences so that Adam and Eve, in believing, their sin would be placed on the animal. So you have the concept of substitutionary death. The animal died instead of Adam and Eve. Now, they died spiritually, but they didn't die eternally. So they were given life. And Adam's faith is expressed in the naming of his wife. Eve means life. They've been released. So this goes all the way to the garden. The whole sacrificial system in Israel is conveying the idea this animal takes the place of my sin. I should be on that altar. I should have bled all my blood out. I should be burnt up because I'm the sinner. This animal is taking my place. And we're going to have this throughout this passage. Christ died, so we have, we're not only spiritually helpless, we have huper, the idea of substitution. And just to show how it runs throughout this passage, all the way through verse 8, we have four, in other words, an inference from what he said in verse 5, the inference, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for, different Greek word, huper, Died for the ungodly. Now we have another inference in verse 7. Gar. Now he's going to give a human example here. For one will hardly die in the place of someone else, a different for. Who pair? See, I was switching words here. For one will hardly die in the place, you could say, for a righteous man, in the place of a righteous man, humanly speaking, somebody that's upright and... Got integrity, people may die, but hardly, though, and by the way, it doesn't translate it for in the New American Standard, but it's gar again, you could say for another inference, for perhaps you might die for, there's huper, in the place of a good man, see that? In the place of a good man, someone would dare even to die, And then here's the whole point. But God, and here's love, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ, very similar to what we have in verse 6, Christ died for who pair. Christ died in the place of us as our sacrifice. He paid the penalty Different four there. So it's good to mark your Bible 
and notice, because the English uses the same word, but in Greek it's actually a totally different word. You got that? Very interesting. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And I've already said the ungodly in just about every context is referring to the unbeliever. Now, there's one passage, I can't remember where, where it refers to the believer, but it's speaking of the believer acting like, and it's talking about the unbeliever, and that's the word that we have here. So it's still, even in that context, referring to an unbeliever. So what we, what can we say about God's love? It's related to hope. It's experienced in tribulation, especially, you might say, Thirdly, it's lavishly poured out. That's what verse 5 emphasizes, the pouring out in a lavish way. And here you could say it's given by grace. We deserve the penalty, but that love, there's a substitute that is substituted for us. So it's given by grace. We don't deserve that outpouring of love, but we receive it. Because we are justified also by grace, and that love that we receive is by grace as well. So we don't deserve the love of God, and you can't appreciate that love of God unless you know what we deserve. And we deserve wrath, we deserve punishment, we deserve condemnation, we deserve all of those negative aspects that are sometimes neglected in the church so that we don't get a accurate picture of reality, we get more of this sense that God's love is this emotional welling up within us, which is not necessarily the case, even in terms of the, the specific word that's chosen, but in terms of everything else he's talking about. So it's given by grace, and if you understand wrath, you appreciate grace, all right? So for, now he's just, let's conclude by looking at the illustration, and then we'll pick up in verse 8. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. In other words, somebody that in a Jewish mind meets all of the standards of the law and has a right relationship to God, but he may not have, I think the commentators take the, the kind of the contrast, if you will, in these two parts of the verse here. Righteous man and good man. You almost think righteous is better than a good man. But I think he may be talking about two different things here. Some commentators say he's just changing stylistically and there's no distinction. And But I think there's a distinction made. I think when he's talking about a righteous man, someone who may have a right standing before God, but has not developed character such that he expresses that to others. In other words, like a new believer. But a good man is one that is expressing, and it's more of a relational word. So it's the one that is not only righteous, but the whole community says, oh, he does so many things. I mean, he is not only full of integrity, but he expresses it, and the whole community benefits, and I've benefited, I've received good gifts from him, etc. So I think he's heightening his comparison here. So one will hardly die for a man that just has a right standing, meets all of the stipulations of the law, you might say, nothing overt. Though, perhaps, and I'm carrying 
prepositions there, so you keep them there. Perhaps for, in the place of, a good man, one that is even beyond righteous, someone would even dare to die, because they have benefited, maybe, from the goodness of this man. And, yeah, I'll I'll die for that guy. But verse 8, and we'll stop here, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Sacrificial. Look at that aspect. But let's stop at this point. So in somewhat conclusion, we can see that, and we'll come back and look at this some more, God's love is related to hope. God's love is experienced in tribulation, especially. It's lavishly poured out. It's given by grace. And we'll see, and I'll emphasize more, it's infinitely greater than human love. That's verse 7. And then in verse 8, it is sacrificial in that it is, you might even say substitutionary, in that it, at great cost, that's God's love. We'll stress that next time. So the next time you are under persecution, next time you are even suffering, you might look for God's love in the midst of that tribulation. And close the word of prayer. One minute. Do it for us today. Bill. Father God, thank you so much for revealing yourself to the prophets and then preserving the scriptures for us. Father, you've gone to a great deal of effort for us to, to examine the very words of God. Grateful. I pray that the lessons we've learned today will change us close to the image of Christ, that you will then reach through us in the lives of us. We pray in Jesus.